right, everyone, thanks so much for tuning in today. Fantastic talking to you once again on this classic Tuesday night. Now, I want to talk very, very quickly and persistently about the very necessary task that pretty much every single celebrity comes into contact with at some point, or as unfortunate as it is, they just simply never find God due to particular abuses or just particular confusion. And often adults deal with this particular confusion just as much as younger children, teenagers, and borderline young adults also as well all throughout their lives. There's so much confusion in the world and people always ask the question, how can you actually have a finding God again type of moment? Because people say that in you know, American magazines all over the place. You know, models will say it. Actors and actresses will say it. Oh, I had a God moment all of a sudden. I, I all of a sudden understand the secrets of the universe, or I all of a sudden understand who I am and who I intentionally am supposed to be. Well, today I thought I would give you five steps to having a real Finding God Again moment. And of course, due to the fact that I am Christian Catholic, we will be going off a Christian Catholic perspective. Now make sure to rate the show on Spotify. It helps me talk to as many people as possible throughout the world. And if you rate the show, there might be a possibility that a church split might happen in your hometown. But of course, you will still get the Discord server link and you can leave a comment and I will respond later and we can possibly later on figure that out. So let's get to it. So there's multiple processes that the multitude of people living in the world today might tell you. They might tell you that you can have a finding God moment by doing yoga on and off, or perhaps they might tell you that you might as well not have a find God again moment and just go out and get wasted at a frat house when you're 21 and older. But this is a very, very detailed and important topic that can literally mean the difference between attaining salvation never seeing salvation. So let's get into it. So here, as it is important, as I said, in the sense of spiritual stability, one of the main issues that continues to emerge within daily spiritual life is a false reassurance. And we find this in manifesting in the occult, which is manifesting and all the, of these daily ideas wanting you to actually take part in yourself as a God versus actually finding God. And in fact, within the past 40 to 50 years or so, there's been an indecent level of theology that has wanted people to just find the God within themselves. And really, that is to an extent Hinduism, but a subverted version of Hinduism. Now, we have to take due diligence here. And let's talk about the five steps to actually have a God-centered moment. And I promise I will get to the five steps of a God-centered moment because I've said that like four times now. But here we go, finally getting into it. Step one, attend a Catholic church and learn Catholic theology. Now, of course, this first step in finding God again, of course, is unlike what most people in Hollywood, California, and any other environment outside of mainstream religious communities might tell you, especially when it comes to the majority of fraternities and sororities and all these 
other places that just have a large composition of people within a certain social environment, or perhaps even unfortunately, religious communities where people gather within a church or within a cult-like church or within some sort of religious institution that people end up not really deeming as an actual religious institution but just a gathering of people. And that's really the difference here. You have to have actual theology within your thinking and you have to have actual theology within your church situation. If you don't have real theology and you aren't actually taking the effort-filled time to think and calmly attempt to redirect your mind, redirect your thinking, redirect your thinking towards an actual Godhead that you're intended to serve and worship and have be Lord over your life, then that really isn't religion anymore. Even Babylon and Neuro-Assyrian communities, as well as all the other communities all throughout the ancient history, all throughout the Middle Ages, all throughout the Dark Ages, all throughout Greece, all throughout even upcoming Spain, up throughout literally every single part of the world, regardless of if they're Catholic, Christian related, or regardless of even if there's some form of Neanderthalic religion thousands upon thousands and thousands upon thousands of years ago, there is still this general concept of having something to worship and something to observe. And sadly, this is what a lot of people in the Catholic communities continue to lose by not actually diving headfirst into Catholic theology and understanding it. Of course, it's very, very strange sometimes, such as transubstantiation in the Eucharist or exorcisms and potential strange spirituality or perhaps some specific need for the priesthood or specific need to stay celibate, all of these things tend to make people today a little bit antsy and a little bit uncomfortable. But of course, yet again, comfort is not the basis in religion. The basis in religion should actually be that you are uncomfortable but are made anew by the God you worship. And generally, people don't want to be made anew anymore. They just simplistically want to go about their own sinful desires and thus again become gods themselves. Now some people would not be very on board with me talking about Catholicism first and then talking about Protestant and talking about Protestantism second. And of course this is obviously because of the East West Schism and the Reformation and all these differentiating theological perspectives. But there's a different formation of history that people tend to reference when it comes specifically to the Catholic Church. And back in past history, as difficult as it is, people always tend to reference the sexual atrocities or just specifically the complete human interactions that were completely sin-centered or they were just completely incapable situations that show imperfection of humanity. And of course, one of these that they love to reference is, say, the example of Pope John XII's Vatican between the period of 955 and 964 that slowly became famous for sexual deprivation. But this is also 
an issue that is completely brought up today, only in a different faction where people enjoy the sexual deprivation as it is praised today in our current standard society, despite the fact that that's literally one of the reasons why people say the Catholic Church is not worth following. So, completely going on the other end of the spectrum here, I, I completely encourage that while, of course, fleeing from all types of immorality, you should immerse yourself within the history and the faith of the Catholic Church first, due to the fact, again, that exposing yourself to the strange that is the Catholic religion, since the Catholic faith is so, so close-handed with the Bible, and they take everything 90% of the time as entirely literal as possible compared to Protestantism, that you will uttermost begin to understand the deepest factors and the deepest points of the faith versus just simply going to a church and saying you go to a church and you quite frankly, you know, you go there for the coffee, you go there for some friends, walk through the front doors, you might mumble the words to some hymn that you half know from when you were 12, and then you walk outside of the church and, you know, that's your particular Sunday without actually understanding any deepened theology. I openly encourage everyone to attempt to understand the deep points of theology in order to actually be able to grow in your faith. And that's a, that's a big growing part of faith is diving headfirst into the deepest and most difficult points of theological practice versus saying that you were raised in some said faith and then having that said faith die. And of course, this, again, is a big consistent problem for quote-unquote new Protestants that walk into a Protestant church without even realizing at some points that the Catholic Church really is even related. So, step two. After going to a Catholic church, attend a Protestant church and learn some things about Protestant theology and everything about Protestant thought. So this is important too because you begin to get all of the history, you get the historical composition of the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church, you learn the differences, you learn the points of the differences, and you actually begin to comprehend the morality of church structure and the morality of the biblical text versus just simplistically knowing that the Bible is in fact a book. And that's another main problem today, and it goes with the first problem that people look at the Bible and they say, well, well, the Bible's a composition. The Bible's a great historical or perhaps somewhat historical composition of great fables or great stories, and that plays into the whole issue we talked about before about simply walking into two front doors of a church before walking out later on. You have to actually gain the education, if you will, and the open-mindedness open to both denominations, and of course this will begin to bring you closer and closer to God. I know a lot of gym rats out there. A lot of gym rats. And they work out at the gym a large amount of the time, probably at least four, five, six, maybe even seven days a week. And generally, some people who don't exercise might just suspect that they live there and they might just, you know, set up shop in the middle of a hallway, sleep in a chair right outside of the saunas or something. But no, a lot of the time people actually do go from 
the gym to their home and then back to the gym in and outside of work. But one of the best ways to actually get muscle tone is through protein intake, as every doctor should know and every single person who works out at the gym should know. I use Premier Protein and they have a lot of fabulous flavors. I enjoy doing the double chocolate because I'm more of a chocolate guy myself. But they also have caramel, they have vanilla, they have double chocolate, and they have dozens and dozens of other flavors. Make sure you try them for your workout. Make sure you hit up the gym and hit up a healthy lifestyle before the new year. So one of the other extremely, extremely important attributes here that can bring you closer to God and thus have a more faith-centered life and thus a more God-understanding, a thought-provoked life alongside of feeling as though you are less lost in a world of complete depravity and complete horrific immorification, if that's a word think it might be but anyways step number three in the five steps of understanding how you can have a fine God moment just happens to be what all ministers out there talk about and it is mentorship and basically people even if they're atheist even if they're agnostic they know that business partnerships are extremely important and of course, you can't just expect to get a business deal by not talking to anybody. And obviously the same thing here that's been communicated numerous, numerous, numerous amounts of times in the religious community, you must have a mentor and you must have a mentor that of course, preferably doesn't run their own cult formation in their basement. So I say that you need at least three. You need at least three mentors that do three different things. Perhaps one example would be, say, a priest at a Catholic parish and a Christian mentor who works at your work alongside of, say, a Protestant pastor. Have those three back to back to back and try to meet with them as much as possible within the given six months, let's say. Six months is generally the long amount of time it takes to, particularly and unfortunately in a broken, uneasy world, go through some sort of challenge, some sort of health crisis, some sort of altercation. And due to that fact, you need at least three mentors to go to, if not sometimes four. When I was going to Spring Arbor University, I had so many mentors and I didn't even understand that I really needed them. I assumed that just based off of the fact that I was in fact going to school for theology, for religious history, for particularly ministry to educate and ministry to save, I assumed that I didn't need anyone to actually discuss much of anything with me. I didn't assume that I would need to actually turn to much of anybody. But of course, the millisecond that you are thrown in the middle of the world, as people tend to have that happen in their early 20s, maybe even a little bit before that, depending on their upbringing, when you're thrown in the middle of the world and it's, it's, it feels like it's just you. It feels like it's just you in the middle of a sea of faces, in the middle of another sea of faces at work, before another sea of faces at your apartment complex, before another sea of faces, particularly even perhaps in your own family. As again, from beforehand, a lot of people have 
various different upbringings, some more rough than others, you always need at least three mentors. I specifically have a mentor who is a bishop at one of the Catholic parishes I go to. I also have a chaplain buddy who also mentors me and checks up on me and I check up on him. And I also had another mentor who is a professor of theology at my Christian college at Spring Harbor University. Of course, my example is not the same as pretty much anyone else. A lot of people might just have their mom or dad to go to, or perhaps one man at times, depending on what's going on completely in their life. Not everyone will have what I dealt with, but you need at the very least, out of those three or those four, you need at least two of them to be working within the ministry field, within the religious field, within the church field. Now moving on to step four here, this is extremely, extremely important. And this is also a problematic, uh, problematic step because similar to step one, which was observe the Catholic Church and understand Catholic theology, this is yet another step that a lot of adults end up losing track of and losing faith before they even get to the step due to the fact that it's again very very specific of if, of an endeavor to take part in. Step four, learn to pray the crucifix and go to confession. So specifically here, specifically when it comes to praying the crucifix, I am on board with praying the crucifix. I really truly am from my Catholic roots. However, when it comes to theology of Hail Marys, that is the only concept that I don't adhere to. Due to the fact that while Mary is extremely important, the Bible says nothing about praying to her specifically. So that, if I'm being frankly honest before we get into this step, that is a effect that you should actually remove from this type of uh, this type of step in the whole entire process. But so here's what one of the main major prayers is, and this is what truly praying the rosary comes down to when you're specifically handling the whole of a spiritual situation regardless of if it's a normal challenge and hardship in your life particularly or something else. This can also be used within exorcisms as well. Of course, we're not necessarily talking about that. We're dealing with the whole of a spiritual scenario that has to particularly do with a challenge um, in someone's life off to themselves. So the prayer is known as the prayer before the crucifix. It's a Catholic prayer known as Jesus crucified. And I'm just going to read it out to you guys so you can fully understand it and fully know what it says and begin to try and pray on it. It says, Look down upon me, good and gentle Jesus, while before thy face I humbly kneel. And with burning soul, I pray and beseech thee to fix deep in my heart lively sediments of faith, hope, and charity, true contrition for my sins, and firm purpose of amendment. While I contemplate with great love and tender pity, 
thy five wounds, pondering over them with envy, having in mind the words which David, thy prophet, said of thee, They have pierced my hands and my feet, they have numbered all of my bones. So, after this, you are, of course, to add Hail Marys into there, but that's not something particularly I do, as I mentioned before, due to the fact that Mary is, in fact, not a god. So, particularly, <coughs> excuse me, particularly here, what you are to do while you're praying this specific prayer is you are to begin with the sign of the cross. So obviously, a Catholic way of this sign of the cross is on the forehead, down to the middle of the chest, and to the left and to the right. The Catholics do it left to right, and the uh, Roman Orthodox Church does it right to left. That's basically a schism thing. But you begin with the sign of the cross, and you say in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. After that, you hold the crucifix in one hand, the prayer book in the other if you have it, and pray the Apostles' Creed, which if you are new to this show and you're particularly new to Christianity, is this. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell on the third day. He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God. And let me find my place here. Seated at the right hand of God. Ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, and the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Amen. So one of the most important things there too as well is it's extremely important to mention how you believe in the forgiveness of sins. It is so, so incredibly important because even no matter who you are, no matter who you generally are, obviously you will sin. And sometimes the smallest sins or the largest sins can simply make any person feel like they're unforgivable. It's, of course, one theological process entirely to discuss the unpardonable sin, and I will get to that much, much later. But at times, when you sin at all in particular, it ends up feeling like an unpardonable sin, regardless of what you're particularly doing. In this statement, saying, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, is a complete clarification that pushes you more towards God. And really, that is a statement that everyone should be saying in opposition to every single form of evil that tells you that your sins can't possibly forgive, be forgiven and therefore you will die and go to hell. This is something that 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 year olds deal with. And this whole of the Catholic Church related prayer completely dives into why that is not the case by the simple statements at the end. And it's very important to look at the statements at the end when it comes to Roman Catholic Church prayers. Because they not only highlight on the whole of the prayer, but they are incredibly personal to the person praying the prayer. 
So step uh, related to step four, going to confession. So this is a this is a specific entire thing that is specific to the Roman Catholic Church. There's also confession when it comes to Orthodox uh, Catholicism. But I encourage all Protestants out there to do confession. And it depends on what Catholic Church you're going to. Some Catholic churches are extremely closed off, and I'm not at all for that. I'm not at all for Catholic churches that are incredibly indecently turned off to every single person who comes in and knows nothing about Roman Catholicism. That's something that Protestants do very, very well, where you could literally, you could be ex-Mormon and now non-religious, you could be atheist, you could be agnostic, you could be someone who was born into a cult and lived in a strange cult in California until they were 50 and you randomly walk into their door and they greet you with open arms. That's something Protestants do quite professionally well. And there's a lot of Roman Catholic churches out there that will say, if you're not born Roman Catholic, if you don't know what this is, if you aren't Roman Catholic, then you shouldn't be here. That's not at all what the Bible is intending for. It's the complete opposite. The door should be completely open and really, if you if you do the you know that extremely unnecessary ideology there, and you say that you aren't Roman Catholic, therefore you might as well just leave. That completely undermines the whole of evangelism. That undermines the whole of conversation. And as a result, that that is just dearly, truly something that Catholic churches never should implement. And I was even at a Catholic church in Lansing quite recently where one of the bishops actually suspected that I wasn't all the way Roman Catholic or he, th he thought I wasn't Roman Catholic the whole entire time. And he kept asking me when I was taking communion. Of course, I said yes. And I did all the due diligences to show that I have Catholicism in my faith. But this is just a complete undermining of the religiosity. It's a complete undermining of what Catholicism should stand for. Catholicism should be more like Protestantism in the way where people can walk into the church and they can actually feel welcome. And thus, of course, that ends up making people feel more welcome when it comes to confession in general. Because confession, quite truly, is where you go into a room, if you've never heard of this, you go into a room in the Catholic Roman Catholic Church and there is what's called a stall and a priest will be there it'll be sideways so you can sit on a chair you can face towards or away from a window that is closed in the wall of it and there will be a priest seated in there or sometimes there might be a cardinal sitting in there depending on who is at the Roman Catholic Church for confession that day but you sit there and you essentially confess your deepest sins. You confess your deepest actions, anything you can think of, generally. You say, first and foremost, forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. And then you mention how long it's been since your last confession. 
thus from tradition and that goes all the way back to past centuries so an example would be saying I'm Jonathan Dysart forgive me father for I've sinned this is my class confession since last week and then I would openly talk to the priest or the bishop and say yeah so here here are all my sins laid down completely and often th this is what people don't enjoy about the Catholic Church particularly too who are new because they they don't want to be opened obviously it's it's obvious psychology and obvious mentality and obvious relationship bonding that you don't just tell some random person every single little attribute about you from your sins today to five minutes ago to five years ago you don't you know outright do that it's very very obvious but this is what Roman Catholicism has traditionally and if you expect people to do that you actually need to welcome them into the church regardless if they completely understand the theology and really step steps one through four really play in on how open you are to have someone in church how open you are to have someone confess even if they don't completely understand it my first confession I'd actually only seen it in movies so I knew the majority of what would go on but I actually didn't end up growing up completely in that faith walk so I actually had the priest ex furthermore explain it to me and then I 100% got it you know because I have the intelligence of you know five Harvard students and I can you know read a book really quickly I guess I don't know but he was very very patient with me and why you have the patience to pray the crucifix and you have the patience to go to confession you have to have also the patience of the priest the bishop or any pastor to allow you to confess and thus be comfortable now the last one on step five is extremely important now it might at first sound like somewhat of a strange Buddhism or some sort of new age methodology when it comes to spirituality but the fact of it is that it's neither of those things but it is a holy calling to holy silence so it's not at all similar to say the silence that Buddhist monks take when they take oaths of silence it's a sort of form of holy silence that after praying the rosary of course with the Hail Marys omitted you hear God and you wait on God and of course obviously you don't want to you know sit in your basement or your room or your kitchen for eight and a half hours waiting on God and then miss work and have something go on there and maybe get fired and end up working at TJ Maxx or something but you do particularly want to wait in holy silence and this is also a persistent type of silence that's particular to Jesus through his temptation and particular to Jesus when he was before Pilate because if you remember from the biblical text he actually did not speak he did not speak when they asked him who he was why don't you save yourself any of these governmental factions that could easily be 
applied so that it would be instated that he did no wrong and thus everyone else in the world would die for, uh, in our own sins because of it. He remained silent and he knew what he had to do. And through our actual holy silence, due to the fact that we don't have to get crucified and we don't have to go to hell anymore and we don't have to be completely destroyed and utterly tormented for all of creation or all of creational time, which of course sounds hard. Thankfully I didn't open with that. But what this really is, is following praying the crucifix, following going to confession and following having uh, all of these mentors within your life and within your upbringing of faith, you have to have holy silence. You have to allow God to speak. It's something that not only everyone my age, including myself, has to work on, but every single adult human being has lost sight in holy silence. Especially Gen Z, especially every single person really in our culture, we don't have silence. We only have silence that we're comfortable with, say, silence after sleeping with a co-worker who's having an affair, or say the silence after smoking a certain amount of intake of drugs and then passing out on the floor, or the silence of doing something else debauchery related. That's the only silence we're used to. But we have to have holy silence. And a holy silence in combination with all of the other four steps. So through the method I use today, and through all these other methodologies that people could bring up in combination with these five steps, although it's not necessarily the method that people, you know, the majority of my audience are probably expecting, you can expect to grow in your God-centered faithfulness, relationships, marriage, and commitment to your holy walk through these five steps. And I truly hope you open up yourself to the Catholic Church, the Protestant Church, and holy silence. Now to end here, touching on why all these concepts are so important, as people get older and older and older, they tend to fall into the strict temptation of assuming that they are just a dead body walking and they will soon be dead and nothing will matter any longer. This is generally how a lot of prison inmates feel, a lot of people who are both wrongly convicted and rightly convicted feel. This is how a lot of people feel when they deal with hardships and marriages, when they deal with any type of horrific atrocity. It ends up feeling as though they are just a dead body walking. But how do we actually receive the sacrament of the Holy Spirit? Of course, it is through faith. But it is also through these actions, these top five actions, to allow us, as we've talked about, to end up understanding exactly who God is and how to find him. We have to receive as the Catholics call right out of the Catholic Catechism and the effects of the celebration of the Sacrament of the Holy Spirit, the particular gift and the holy mystery of the Holy Spirit. Now reading out of the Catholic Catechism, the first grace of the sacrament is one of strengthening, peace and courage to overcome the difficulties that go with the condition of serious illness or the fragility of old age. 
This grace is a gift of the Holy Spirit who renews trust and faith in God and strengthens against the temptations of the evil one, the temptation to discouragement and anguish in the face of death. This assistance from the Lord by the power of his Spirit is meant to lead the sick person to healing of the soul, but also of the body, of such as God's will. Furthermore, if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. This goes hand in hand with confession. This goes hand in hand with both Catholic and Protestantism. And this goes hand in hand with the reality of what we face as we get older and older, but also what we face when we sin. Thus being said, when we sin and we actually cling to God, not that we want a sinful, lustful life, but that we cling to God in our brokenness is when we are truly forgiven and we can truly have that God moment. And I will talk to you this week. Thanks for listening.